so I hope that this was not falsely advertised in the booklet. It just said medical education. Uh, this was the title that I thought I had given them. Uh, so if you're not interested in medical students or residency education, if you leave, I won't be, I won't be hurt. Uh, but uh, so what we're going to do, there are three of us involved. I'm going to do a little bit of an opening. And I'm Dr. Jim Smith from Oregon Health and Sciences University. And I'm going to raise a bunch of questions about starting a new medical school. And then uh, Dr. Alyssa Fisters is going to give all the answers uh, in the next part. Uh, and some of you may have heard her, just, she just had another talk in the other room before this. And then uh, Dr. Chris Jenkins, who's within his image, is going to talk about uh, the type of things that they do in cons consultations for family medicine training programs. So what do you need to think about if you want to start a residency training program? So I'm going to start off with, uh, first of all, we have nothing to disclose. There's no money in this, so... Uh, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what you need to think about before you start a medical school or residency. And we'll just talk very briefly about SWOT analysis. I'm going to raise some questions. And as I said, uh, uh, Dr. Feasters is going to talk about, from her experience, working in a medical school in Burundi. And then Chris is going to talk about his experience working as a consultant. Uh, so for my part, we're going to talk about a SWOT analysis, uh, consider some of the uh, essentials for setting up a healthcare education program, the things that you need to think about, facilities, faculty, what students you're going to take, what curriculum you're going to have, and financing it. So why is there a need for healthcare personnel in Africa? This, uh, the picture on the right is just to represent one of the needs. Uh, it is said that a pregnant woman in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, has about a 20 I'm sorry, about a 5% chance of needing a C-section. But if she needs the C-section, there's only about a 5% chance that she would be able to access it. And that may be a little bit low, but uh, that just gives you an idea. The problem is, Africa has 11% of the world's population, but it has 25% of the world's disease burden. Despite all of that, it only has 3% of the health, world's health workers and only spends about 1% of the budget. It's been estimated in sub-Saharan Africa that about 40% of the hospitals are mission hospitals and that they give about 60% of the health care. I think that latter figure is probably high, but that's one of the things that I read. So, I mean, they have medical schools, so why is there such a need? And we've all heard about the brain drain, uh, trouble keeping them in Africa. And if any of you were at uh, Dr. Feaster's talk before, she talked about the difficulty of keeping people. And it isn't just doctors. It's nurses, pharmacists, uh, and other uh, allied health people. So, uh, they may be needed, but one of the concerns is, will there be opportun uh, employment opportunities for them when they graduate? Uh, will they receive adequate training? There are a lot of new medical schools going in in Africa. Uh, like, for instance, I've, I have lived in uh, Kenya uh, years ago, and I've been back several times. In Kenya, I think there are seven new medical schools that have opened within the last five or six years. Uh, how are we going to prevent them, or how are they going to be prevented from uh, immigrating to high-income countries? And how can we encourage them to live in a rural area? So, this is a common story. Missionary hospital struggles with the quality of care that local doctors perform. Sometimes they're associated with a local university. And so they say, well, let's train our own doctors. Uh, sometimes they start these medical schools with uh, little facilities and less faculty. And that can be a problem. So what happens, sometimes these schools get started and then they have to close because of inadequate preparation. Uh, and then sometimes the leadership will ask for outside help. So this, I'm sure you've all heard of a SWOT analysis. You look at the strengths of your program. Uh, you look at the weaknesses of your program. Then you look at opportunities, and you look at threats. And if you're going to look at it in another way, uh, you have internal, uh, uh, internal parts, which are helpful, which would be your strengths those that could potentially be harmful, which would be your weaknesses, and then you have external factors, 
which would be opportunities are helpful, and then threats that would be harmful. So, what about facilities? You need to think about having lecture room, small group rooms, laboratory space, equipment. Uh, when it comes to the clinical uh, teaching facilities, if you're going to have a medical school, you need to think about what are you going to, where are you going to teach them clinically. Are you going to use a mission hospital? Are you going to try to use government hospitals? Are there going to be outpatients available for people to do this? Uh, and is there going to be an adequate patient load to train the number of doctors that you have? Another question is, how many students are you going to take? Uh, do you get to choose, or is it going to be mandated by the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of Education? Or in some situations, if you're associated with a church organization, they may tell you how many students you have to take and who you have to take. So you need to think about, are you going to have representatives from the local area, ethnic groups, tribal groups, uh, etc.? Are you t- going to take only Christian students, or are you going to take other religions as well? And that's probably going to depend on the country. Basic science faculty, where are you going to get them? There are very few basic science faculty available in most of these uh, low-income countries, and that's probably one of the bigger needs that some of these newer medical schools have. Uh, you can get expat faculty, but expat faculty are fickle. They come and go, and you may have them this year and not next year. Uh, so, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to run down those that are full-time. But, but it, it is a problem. You know, I'm involved with the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, and we're constantly having problems with you know, our expat faculty. Somebody gets sick, they have to go home, and, and where you had two surgeons, now you only have one, and it's hard to keep the program going. So these are questions that you need to think about. Uh, if you're going to use a mission hospital to train your medical students, are the faculty interested in teaching? Do they want to teach? Do they have any experience in teaching? Uh, and one of the big things that I get, not just in this situation, but when I go to other countries in a secular situation, for instance in China, the biggest complaint is for people who are teaching is they don't give me any extra time to do it and they don't pay me any more money to do teaching. So why should I bother? Uh, And so that's always a problem. And then are there any resources for doing faculty development? The other things are, are you going to do uh, traditional curriculum? If so, how many years? That's going to depend on the country. Uh, What kind of entrance requirements are you going to have? Uh, Is it going to be dictated by the Ministry of Education? And that, I think, is in a lot of places the curriculum may be set by the Ministry of Education And the question is, are you going to have any opportunity to innovate? Finances. Startup cost. Who's going to fund the school? Sometimes uh, organizations are willing to build you buildings, but it's the ongoing expenses of paying faculty, etc., that's hard to get money for. So are you going to charge more tuition? Then people can't afford to come, and so on. Uh, How about the sustainability of your finances? Are you going to have to do fundraising? Again, are you going to make your tuition to the point where it's unaffordable? So I just want to acknowledge uh, Dr. uh, Dan Panero gave a lot of this in a talk here about three years ago, and he let me borrow his slides. So some of these slides are from him. So I'm now going to turn it over uh, to Alyssa, and uh, we'll see if we can get her talk up here. I also have to put this on. Ah, look, I think we're, I think, I'll make sure. Ah, there you go. You need that. And, uh, it's too close to me. Can't see. There you go. All right. Okay, hi, my name is Alyssa. Um, so I'm going to share a bit of a case example of answers to all these questions. Well, not really answers, more our experience um, in working with Hope Africa University Medical School in Burundi. Burundi is this tiny little country of 10 million people sandwiched between uh, Congo and Tanzania, just south of Rwanda. This is Hope Africa University. It's a bilingual French-English, Université Espoir d'Afrique as well. Um, So it was begun in 2004 by Burundian refugees in Kenya and then moved to Burundi when things stabilized a bit in 2005. 
the president of Burundi um, himself requested the medical school, requested the university to start a medical school to help deal with the issue of having very few doctors, only 2.6 doctors per 100,000 people. Um, and so the bishop and the rector of the university at the time specifically was praying for six specialists. He actually had housing planned for six specialists at the World Teaching Hospital of Kibuye Hope Hospital. Our team approached him during the end of our post-residency time in Kenya with six specialists. Um, so it was quite remarkable to see how God had provided. When they started the medical school, they had almost no faculty. Um, and they had some by the time we got there, but very few for the rural teaching hospital. There was one doctor there, a generalist physician, when we got there um, to check out the site. Um, so this is Kibuye Hope Hospital. Um, our team first visited in 2010. Uh, like I said, well, we were post-residents. We finished the post-residency program, did support raising, tropical medicine training, and then a whole year of French language study, and finally got to the field did Kirundi language study, and then started clinical work in January of 2014. So that's just an example of what Jim was talking about, of just how long it takes expats to get to the field, let alone what happens when they're there. So since then, um, the first graduates were in 2013, and we've had nearly 300 new doctors for Burundi as a result of our university, um, which is very exciting. So what have we learned? Um, well, I'm going to now go through the five areas that Jim talked about, facilities, students, faculty, curriculum, and finances, and just give some specific examples of what we have learned along the way. So first, facilities. Um, so the lab uh, was required by the East African Community Accreditation Process, so we were able to raise the funds to start a lab. Um, and this is my uncle, who's a microbiologist. These are the outfits we wear for graduation. This is a Burundian thing. But he came out, got the lab started, taught a short month-long microbiology course. Um, since then, the lab's been beautiful, but unused um, because there's nobody local to teach it or knows what to do with it. So this is one of the challenges that comes up. We have been able to use teleeducation for some educational needs. So some courses that the students need as a requirement of the Ministry of Higher Education curriculum, we don't have faculty to teach them. Um, and so we have people like Dr. Jim who teach ENT course um, remotely. Uh, now that we have solar power for the hospital, we have better internet or better electricity to provide better internet, and that has made a difference. Um, it's maybe not as ideal as having someone who works long-term in the local context and understands what, what we have available locally to treat certain diseases, etc. But it's certainly better than not having the course offered at all um, and having our students not get that, that training. Um, the other option is that what we've done before is we've had short-term people, like I said, like my uncle, the microbiologist, come out and teach a semester-long course in, like, two weeks. <laughs> so that's, like, eight hours of lecture a day. Um, everybody's exhausted. It's not great for learning. Um, but the course gets checked off. Um, but it's not ideal. So if you have remote teaching, it works a little bit better for, for learning. So for clinical facilities, uh, you obviously need a place where there's adequate patient volume and adequate opportunities for learning. Um, Kibuya Hope Hospital has ex had exponential growth over the last six years. Um, you can see the new buildings listed there. Um, growth tends to be uneven. Um, if you look at the internal medicine service, a lot fewer patients compared to OB, surgery, etc. Um, I would say explain that for Burundi, the government pays for free care for children under five and pregnant women. So that tends to be most of our patients. Um, in internal medicine, we might have, this, the students need the same number of internal medicine rotations as they need for peds. So we might have 10 medical students for five patients um, in internal medicine. But in peds, those 10 medical students might be managing 10 patients each. Um, so there's, there's uneven growth. Uh, surgery departments have, have grown exponentially over the last few years. The lab has basically stayed the same. Um, so things like that, it's hard to, it's hard to control growth. Um, and it tends to be if you build it, they'll come. Um, and so we have a brand new pediatric building opening in about six months, three stories tall, 120 beds. I'm excited and nervous um, about that opening because at the moment I'm the only pediatrician, so that's a lot to manage. Um, our hospital is what's called agré in French, so it means we have an agreement between the government as a district hospital, the university as a teaching hospital, and the church as a mission hospital. 
All that's great. There are advantages uh, to lots of people having an interest in Kibuye doing well. It also means there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, um, and so that can be problematic sometimes. All right, so accepting students. These were some of the questions that Jim put up there. So these are our graduates. Um, it's hard to plan ahead. Uh, so we were actually very concerned early on in this experience about having way too many students to be able to give them good quality education. Um, in the end, there was a change in the government matriculation process. We ended up with no students for two years in a row. And then we ended up with a reasonable number again. So it's, it's, this is life. This is what you deal with. This is the nature of missions in a low-resource setting. Um, flexibility, obviously, is the name of the game. Actually, about a quarter of these particular medical students are Cameroonian because Cameroon closed all of their private medical schools and uh, they were stuck three, four, five years into training with nowhere to go. Um, so they came to Burundi, a French-speaking country, um, and uh, that worked out. These students have overcome a lot. Half of them have lost at least one parent, um, and most of their parents uh, did not go beyond uh, secondary school education. Um, so they've, come, they've overcome a lot to get to this point, but there have been gaps in their education. So... Um, I was surprised early on to discover that I actually needed to teach the math needed to do pediatric drug calculations. Uh, somewhere along the way, that was not learned. Um, so things that you think would be understood for people, critical thinking obviously is a big one that people talk about. Um, but these are things that, that have to be taught. He also asked about Christian versus non-Christian. Most of our, so we do have a Christian medical school, it's private. Um, but most of, so most of our students come from either Catholic or Protestant backgrounds, but not all. Um, it was a couple years ago I had had a language tra translator help me get the Bible story translated into Kirundi for the Easter story. I was going up to the malnutrition program to share that. And I needed a medical student to go with me just to show the pictures. And the only med student I could find was the Muslim medical student. And I was like, I'm going to go share the story about Jesus up at the malnutrition program. Any chance you would be able to come? And he's like, sure. And I think it was probably the first time he'd ever heard that story. So you never know what God will do with that. It was a good, good opportunity for me to connect with him. Um, so it, it depends on the setting as to what you're, what you're going to do from that standpoint. So as he said, basic science faculty are so hard to recruit. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you know of anybody who wants to come live in Burundi and is a basic science of some sort, then please let me know. Um, the other factors that go along with this is even if we hire a local national faculty who also teach at the, the government medical school, for example, um, the funding is difficult. Um, so the university has lots of priorities and the business department doesn't really want the medical school to get priority for, for funding. And if you raise money for the medical school, well, what about, is there a champion to raise money for the education school? Is there a champion to raise money for the pharmacist? And so it, um, it, it does become tri tricky politically. The other thing about expat faculty is most mission agencies have uh, missionaries do home assignment in the U.S. 20% um, of the time is pretty standard. One year out of five is in the U.S. So that means we're gone 20% of the time. I'm the director of pediatrics for our hospital. I'm now in the U.S. for five months. Who does that in my absence? Um, it's tricky. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's a factor. I would love to recruit a Burundian pediatrician. Um, all of my salary comes from supporters in the U.S., I doubt they're going to provide that same amount to a Burundian physician um, if I weren't there, for example. And, um, you know, Burundian physician in peds is not really, like a surgeon could actually earn money for the hospital. A pediatrician's probably not going to do that. So there, there's challenges from that standpoint, getting faculty. I will say that when we first arrived, our generalists, like he said, they may not be hired to be to be teachers, and they may not be recruited for it. As time has gone on, the generalist doctors that we have hired have been our graduates from our medical school. And so they have really absorbed the culture of lifelong learning, of the importance of teaching, and they initiate the teaching with the nursing students now um, in a great way. During our morning rounds, during our morning report, um, I see them take the initiative. They want to lead grand rounds. In fact, we're scheduled out for the next several months because generalists have been coming to me saying, hey, can I do a talk on diabetic nutrition and 
Great. Yes, that would be awesome. Um, so it's just taken time for them to catch the vision. It's taken time for us to develop trust locally in a culture that is very suspicious um, years before we're respected locally as, um, as colleagues. Um, and we have had to learn how to respect our – how to to, mod, to demonstrate respect for our African authority figure. So we work under the medical director, under the rector, under the bishop. They're all Burundian. Um, and we think, oh, yeah, of course we respect them. But, for example, early on, I made the decision that I thought wasn't important to share with the medical director that my medical students, half of them could have Christmas off and half could have New Year's off very common thing done in the U.S. It was this huge deal because I didn't, I just thought it affected my peds med students and it turned out it was subverting his authority over the hospital to make that call. Um, I should have run that by him and he would have, you know, told me whether that was a good idea or not and understood the local context as to whether that was appropriate. So all that to say there's, um, yeah, it, it depends on the setting. Global humility is, is very key. There's a book on humility that, that I would recommend from that standpoint. For curriculum, it can be Ministry of Higher Education or Ministry of um, Health dictated. Our system is French. We've learned that a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the ways of doing things medically in the Belgian or French system are different from the U.S. system. And so they said you know, things early on, like, well, shouldn't we try this medication? And we're like, what? Why would you do that? And then we, we look and, oh, it's something that's done commonly in France. We just don't do that in the U.S. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just different. Um, one thing that we have been able to do, so there's, um, traditionally, it's been a very traditional curriculum, like I said, dictated from others, um, of take this course, take this course, just take this course, but very little integration amongst the courses or between clinical years and basic science years. Um, the integrated medical course was added, which is a 40-hour course that is taught during the clinical years that our team was asked to teach. And you can see all the topics there. Sorry, the formatting doesn't look like it worked out. It's pretty vague, but we were able to be creative with it and actually help the students think through how to integrate their prior knowledge um, with patient care taught during clinical years. Um, so that was one way we were able to, to adapt the curriculum to, to be a little bit more um, interactive and, and relevant. Um, the other thing on there about problem-based learning, this was an interesting thing in that some folks from the Netherlands came down to start problem-based learning in Burundi. Well, PBL is a great thing. It's done a lot of places around the world. But I don't think the, the Dutch really understood the huge cultural difference in particularly the area of power distance. So Burundi is a very hierarchical society. When we moved there, we were asked early on, do not invite medical students into your homes. You can do Bible study at the hospital, but not in your homes, because this is not appropriate culturally. The Dutch were thinking first-name basis with your colleagues. Everybody's all together as a learner, um, which we do model lifelong learning and, and, and all of that. Um, but it, it was a difficult thing culturally for Burundians to understand how the professor would be sitting in a small group of students in an informal setting um, learning together. Um, and so ultimately it hasn't rolled out. Um, it was, it was we were trained in it. We were told it was going to happen, and so far I haven't seen that it has happened. So maybe it still will. Um, but understanding the local culture is key to, and getting local buy-in is key to making these things work. Um, all right, so we don't want to completely change local learning culture, um, but over time we do try to make things more interactive and hands-on. Um, all medical students have to do theses, so that's been one way we've gotten involved. This is a thesis jury on the top right there, um, the Burundian medical student with the three th thesis jury members. That's something that I never had to do as a medical student, so I've had to learn as we go. Um, but it's a, a, a fun opportunity to get to teach research skills, that kind of a thing. Um, Finances, just a quick word on that. Uh, these are two specialist Burundian doctors who we've been able to recruit. They were able to do their residency programs in other African countries and then come back to Burundi. Um, most of our medical students had outsized funding sources, either scholarships, etc. cetera. Um, but when they're done, who's going to pay their salary? So that's a big question. And how um, are we going to support these families? This is Dr. Aliant and his wife down there. What kind of career opportunities does his wife have? Um, what about their children? What schooling opportunities do they have? These are things that have to be thought about in order to make this a sustainable endeavor. 
So there is hope. Um, 95% of our Hope Africa University graduates are still in Africa. Um, about 64% are employed, so you can see that there's still need for growth there in finding employment opportunities. And you have to think about, they are competent for what setting? For rural Burundi, for East Africa, for Bujumbura, for Canada, you know, what... What, are you, what is your ultimate goal? I would say our focus is on mentorship and discipleship so that they learn to be lifelong learners and so that they catch a vision for caring for the least of these. So teaching and modeling empathy, compassion, how to pray with patients, how to give hope and apply the gospel in no matter the situation, um, how to really be the hands and feet of Christ for um, the fray in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Um, so that's our hope. So I'm just going to end up with this section. Uh, talk about the possibility of a way forward would be collaboration. Uh, I've heard that several times since I've been here, particularly like in doing research projects, etc. cetera. Uh, We've talked about in the past and never really been able to get it off the ground. I'm with Medical Education International, which is part of CMDA, to try to develop some kind of a faculty pool that could be possibly these places could uh, uh, check out on. Uh, we talked a little bit about offer online course repository, uh, some uh, teaching teams, digital resources, and one of the things that I have thought that would really be good, because there are a lot of Christian medical schools, in particularly East Africa, if you could get all of the people who work in those schools together, but the problem is finances and trying to get them uh, in one place. But it would be ideal because I think they would learn a lot or just enjoy uh, talking to each other as to what uh, types of problems they've had. So, in summary... Uh, there's a great need for more health care professionals in low-income countries. If you're going to start something like this, I would encourage you to do something like a SWOT analysis to make sure what the uh, strengths and weaknesses of your program could be. And then think about the challenges you're going to have with facilities, student selection, faculty, uh, curriculum development, and probably more than anything else, finances. Uh, and so I would also say that collaboration, particularly for some of these new medical schools, would be very important. So I think what we'll do, if there's one burning question right now, I'll always switch over. Chris is going to start. But if anybody wants to ask a uh, question, yeah, I'll just put it, you put it right here. I'll just make it bigger. Okay, so Chris is going to be talking about starting a residency program. As soon as I get hooked up. I get you hooked up here. Yeah. Okay. Are there residencies in Burundi? We start talks in January. Okay. Sure. And that, the advancer? The uh, slide advancer there? I think so, yeah. Let's see if it will work. And uh, does it need to put it in there? Oh, okay. Well, let's, no, let's see. How do we do this? No, this is. That's a USB port there, isn't it? Yes. just put it in there. I'm looking for my adapter. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, actually. This is my adapter. Do you have it? You still have it over there. That's okay. There we go. Now we got it. Now we got it. Now we got it. Okay. Are there secular residency programs in the medical schools? In We're starting them this year in Bujumbura. They have had some in the past where some of them went to France for part of their training. But, yeah, there haven't been any that have Keyboard have identified. So the specialists have gone away like to France right. or someplace like that. And then come back. All right. Okay, so here we go to stage two, and uh, I'm going to be talking about residency development, and thank you all again, like Jim said, for coming, not knowing exactly what you're getting into, uh, but I'm going to focus on starting residency. I'm not going to deal so much with the nuts and bolts like uh, Jim and Elisa did, uh, as much as concept and vision, and just some ideas uh, to make your program as uh, medically and spiritually effective as possible. 
So uh, I'm Chris Jenkins. I'm a faculty member within his image medicine, or family medicine residency, and I'm a consultant within his image international. So that's who I am. Uh, so a few essential elements, and we're going to talk about these uh, one by one, uh, slide by slide as we go through. But just to quickly tell you what we're going to go over, uh, having a vision for family medicine training as a tool for reaching a country, uh, compassion, service, evangelism, discipleship, uh, the integration of faith and medicine with education, uh, a model of family medicine is country-specific. And I'm coming from a family medicine perspective, uh, and so it's going to be a little slanted that way. But I think most of what I'll share is uh, relative to other specialties as well, because I'm talking, again, more about concepts rather than specific skills or, or details of setting up a program. Um, uh, and you can just substitute your own specialty, your own healthcare profession in, in there when I say family medicine, if you'd like to. Uh, you want to have a standard of excellence that's both a witness to the place you are working in and is realistic uh, as, really, um, as far as local standards are and conditions are. You want to be innovative in your education to both do medical training but also ministry training and character formation. And that, again, depends on uh, what country you're in and how far you can take that. Uh, maintaining relationships with senders and colleagues in the field. Uh, and accountability and preventing mission drift. And if you haven't heard of the book called Mission Drift, I highly recommend it. And a long-term vision of training, not a short-term, not a shorter-term vision. So you, you all know that medicine gets you into countries where many other things won't, whether it's business or certainly missions or seminary. Medicine will get you into places that uh, other platforms will not. Uh, and to really see it as a, uh, a ministry outreach and not just a service is key. Uh, the term platform has kind of uh, gone out of favor in some circles uh, because that's, the thought is, well, my platform to get into the country is this, and then I do my ministry over here. But no, in medical education, they're combined. Your, your educational process is your ministry, uh, and you can combine it with the faith uh, instruction that you want to include in your outreach. So really seeing that and understanding that is key to making the most of the opportunity that you're going to have. Um, knowing the spiritual need of the country is important, of course, how the health needs are going to be affected by what you're, what you're training for, and, um, and serving the local church as a, as a physician, as a trainer. Uh, you are an extension of the body of Christ. So we're not just going in independent of the local body, if there is one. In a lot of countries we work in, there is not, or at least not one that's easily accessible. But seeing your, your connection with the uh, educational process and the church that is part of the country that you're working in. Um, we've, we have a program in Papua New Guinea that we're involved with. And the hospital is, is with the Nazarene Church. They have seminary. They have uh, church planning ministries. They have this, that, and the other. But according to the missionaries there, the hospital is the most fruitful part of their outreach, adding more people to the church and enabling the planning of more churches than any other part of the Nazarene Church's ministries. So health care education uh, is a ministry opportunity in and of itself. Um, and uh, there's a fellow, Dr. David Reakin, Van Reakin, wrote a pamphlet, um, a booklet in the 1980s uh, called, and I can't read it on my own slide here. Let me enlarge my text here so I can read what I'm looking at. Uh, Christian Medical Practice in Today's Changing World Culture. Now, this was written 30 years ago, in the mid or early 1980s. Uh, he's looking at missions in the Philippines, and he's comparing a hospital uh, with, their, with their agency with a seminary that they had and a primary and secondary school that they had. And they were all equally effective in bringing people to Christ and planting churches and uh, discipling uh, uh, individual Christians. And the one thing they have in common is presence, a long-term presence. Uh, the, their long-term presence enables the local folks to observe the lives of the missionaries and the local Christians. It enables them to ask their questions, to think about what's being presented, and to decide for or against Christ. That is what they all have in common. And then the hospitals and the training, medical training programs were just as fruitful as these other seemingly more uh, outreach-oriented types of, types of services, training pastors and raising up kids uh, in a Christian school. Um, and it, 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 it certainly follows the example of Christ, you know, spending time uh, with his disciples and, and doing evangelism for a long period of time uh, in his ministry. 
So integration of faith and medicine, we talk about that, but you also want to integrate the, uh, faith and medical practice and education uh, regardless of what country you're in as to whatever extent you can do it. Uh, and there are different degrees of opportunity. Some of the countries we work in are wide open. They're Christian. You can be as open and free to pray with your trainees, to teach, have Bible studies, to show them how to interact with their patients and give spiritual counseling and uh, just make the most of that opportunity. And there are countries where you can't do any of that because if you did, you'd be either kicked out of the country or killed. We work in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places that are very difficult, so you have to be very careful. But every country has an opportunity. And being there with the people gives you a chance to exploit the opportunity. In, in some of those more restrictive countries, it's just living the life of Christ, letting your light shine, and uh, cultivating relationship development, both within and outside the training program, so that uh, those relationships develop, trust develops, and uh, uh, hopefully curiosity is created so they'll ask you about your faith and you have an opportunity to share your faith or, or talk something about it. Um, we really encourage as much as possible using that biopsycho, uh, social, spiritual model of medicine. And uh, again, it depends on what country and how open you can be about it. But uh, teaching the local folks to recognize the spiritual component of every doctor-patient encounter. And I believe there is a spiritual component in every, every encounter. Some are more urgent and pressing and, and uh, obvious. Uh, and some are just affirming where they are. Oh, you're doing great. Let me pray for you. And then you go on. Uh, but every encounter has some spiritual component. Uh, you know, just, use, just thinking of our, our clinical practice in Tulsa, uh, we get a lot of uh, women coming in who are pregnant, uh, single, maybe a second, third, or fourth kid, second, third, or fourth partner. And, uh, of course, we want uh, healthy pregnancy, safe uh, pregnancy, safe environment, good delivery, and that's all medically important. But they're in there as single moms because of their worldview, their outlook, and what they believe is acceptable, uh, what they believe is okay to do. And so we can uh, bring up the whole issue of what their beliefs are and, and how God designed us. And guys will come in wanting to be tested for STDs and uh, get the Viagra refilled. And so that's another opportunity to talk to the guys about uh, where they're coming from. So uh, it, whether it's uh, um, in Papua New Guinea again... Um, a machete laceration, you know, well, you've got to sew it up, you've got to keep the wound clean, keep the infection from setting in. But there, there are spiritual issues there. Somebody's angry. Someone uh, has a problem with anger, not forgiving. And this guy that you're healing or this woman who you're taking care of is going to have to deal with forgiveness. And are they going to forgive the person that, they, that wounded them or are they going to carry it on? So every, every encounter has something going on it. And, you, and we want to train our trainees to recognize it and then to speak into it as they're able. Um, and that's part of integrating faith and, med- and the practice of medicine. Uh, with family medicine, and family medicine is a little different. Uh, it's not as well understood as some of the other specialties. And uh, there's a bunch of different models out there. Everything from outpatient only and very few clinical procedure, uh, yeah, office uh, uh, procedures to they do far more than we do in the United States. Uh, outpatient, inpatient, OB and surgical procedures that we wouldn't think of doing here as family doctors in the U.S. So there's all kinds of models. There is not one model that fits every situation. And uh, depending on the country you're in, you're going to have to adapt to that and, uh, and uh, modify the, the, the kind of training you give. Um, you want, and the level of support in each country is a little bit different from full support from the government. The Chinese government is very supportive of, they call it general practice, and they've been working on it for several decades to try to create uh, a model that works effectively in their own setting. They're still struggling. They're still making mistakes, but they're working at it. To other countries that give it lip service, to other countries that never heard of it before we showed up, like Afghanistan. Uh, but now they're, now they're trying to get their own uh, training programs going. So different starting points and understanding and support levels, and then the, the different uh, in, uh, um, cultural environments make uh, all impact the training, whether it's on the spiritual side or economic, the medical system that already exists, the cultural factors uh, affect training. Uh, Muslim countries, the guys are limited in what they can do with women and vice versa, so it affects how you can train them. So you have to adapt the model. And uh, this is a little bit more on that. Uh, along with all the, the, the logistical details that Elisa and Jim were dealing with, uh, resources, faculty, equipment, 
uh, trainees, hospitals, all those kinds of things. There are hidden issues that also can make or break a program. This is especially pertinent for family medicine, but it applies to one degree or another to other specialties as well. But in the case of family medicine, uh, you can have everything else lined up and still not succeed, all these logistical things lined up, if the family medicine doctor is not paid as well. Uh, you know, they're going to go to the same medical schools their colleagues are in, and they're going to say, well, why should I do this when they're, I'm not going to get paid as much? Uh, prestige, if it's not considered a, uh, a, a full-fledged specialty or a, uh, a specialty that's desirable to practice for the rest of your life, they're not going to want to go into it. Uh, a potential for professional advancement. Um, uh, respect from their colleagues and patients, uh, professional satisfaction, intellectual satisfaction. There are, some models are good and some are not so good. And um, um, if we do want to take into account the models that exist, but we also want to encourage them to stretch and shape, uh, be reshaped to appeal to those who are going to be doing it for the rest of their lives, the medical students. So if the model that's being used doesn't appeal to the medical student, is, uh, it's going to be like pulling teeth to get students to go into it. And that's the experience that China's had. They, they see it as a good um, preventive medicine specialty, uh, taking care of primary care issues, which is appropriate, but they have not made it a very skills, procedural-oriented type of practice, and, so, and it doesn't make as much money as the other specialists, so they're not having res- medical students want to go into the residency programs. Uh, they are recognizing that, and they're trying to uh, um, deal with that and correct that, but uh, those hidden issues are as important as the open issues. Um, we do want to strive for excellence wherever uh, we're practicing, whatever country we're training in. Uh, excellence means different things in different places. It's what's, what's possible. Uh, what is the economy like in a, a given country? And that will determine to some extent what's possible medically because if the con- economy is poor, they're not going to have uh, resources. They're not going to have imaging equipment. They may not have all the medicines that you're used to using. They may not have the diagnostic equipment that you're used to. But whatever the situation, you want to do the best as possible in the circumstances you're operating in. Um, at the same time, the realism is um, you may not be able to treat everybody that you could have treated in the place that you were trained. And some people can't deal with that very well. They, they, they're doing the best they can, and they're seeing people die that wouldn't have died if they were here in the States or some other developed country or high-income country. And the internal tension and discord that creates is too much for some people to handle, and they end up leaving or just being very unhappy on the field and very frustrated all the time. Rather than seeing the good they're doing, and recognizing the good they're doing for the individuals that, that they are saving and they are helping and working toward the day when there is a better health care system available, better, more resources available. Um, innovation in medical training is, is important. You know, you're going to have a curriculum. And uh, if you're in a Christian program where most of your trainees are Christians, then you can use the training process, this, the, this the good old medical curriculum, to prepare for ministry. You have a pediatric component, <coughs> in family medicine at least. Well, develop a vision for uh, caring for orphans. You know, take them to an orphanage. And, learn, and you can learn the newborn care, pediatric care, congenital abnormalities. Many of the orphanages around the world are full of kids that have been abandoned because it has some kind of defect. Uh, not just their parents died. And so you're going to be able to learn how to handle these uh, congenital defects. Um, nursing homes, you learn geriatrics, you learn end-of-life care, hospice, palliative care, and a, and a vision for taking care of the weak and the infirm and the demented, uh, developing a heart of compassion. Uh, and, and this will work both for Christians who you're trying to develop a ministry heart in, but also for non-Christians and whom you're helping to develop a heart of compassion in. And often in, in countries that are, uh, well, in many countries, uh, medicine is a job. You make your money off of sick people, and then you go to the next patient, and you hurry through them as quickly as you can. But if you can inculcate a heart of compassion in your local trainees, you're much farther down the road in, in um, uh, helping the community than otherwise. So these kinds of charitable um, expressions of training uh, help anybody, Christian and non-Christian. And, and you can just go right down the list. Don't forget to keep your relationships, not only with your sending agency, but your, your colleagues in the field. You don't want to be reinventing the wheel. You don't want to feel like you have to uh, 
uh, invent a training program uh, from scratch. Um, there will be long-term missionaries in your, in your area that you can uh, reach out to for help and advice. Uh, you can get resources from others. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of organizations at this meeting that you can draw on, Medical Education International, CMDA for short-term uh, uh, teaching doctors, uh, experienced people who can help with uh, problems that arise as you're going through the process of setting up a program or running it and running into uh, challenges along the way. So you want to see yourself as a part of the body of Christ in your training program, your, in your medical education ministry, and draw on other resources that are within the body to make your efforts successful. And again, not to just be a, uh, an independent uh, actor. Remain vision true. Um, you're going out to start a program that you hope will train local doctors to do uh, good medicine, and hopefully, if they're Christians, to do medicine as ministry. And uh, you're not going to be there forever, though. Someone's going to take over eventually. How will, how will you uh, ensure that the purpose that you started that program with is maintained by those who take over? And I, I mentioned the book Mission Drift. I, uh, it it kind of describes the challenge and the problem of staying mission true, of an organization staying mission true, and thinking not just for your time there, but for those who come after you. How do you put safeguards in place that will help keep it on track? It's not always possible. You don't always have the ability to put in controls that will uh, help keep it on track, but to the extent that you can, you want to. Uh, So Mission Drift, the book. Um, Not going to go over this much because Elisa and Jim did it, but the same issues are involved. You want to do an assessment of need. Uh, You need a believing faculty. As far as uh, family medicine goes, we would recommend no fewer than three family medicine faculty. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be risking burnout. And the more, the better. But if you, if you have three faculty, really you're going to be operating with two. Someone's going to be on furlough. Someone's going to be off the clock and at home. Uh, someone may get sick. So you're kind of rotating between three people with two on at a time, generally. There'll be times when they're all there, but a lot of times there will be only the two of you. So if you only have two, then it's the same thing, but only one. So someone will be on furlough and you'll be there alone. Uh, so... Have an adequate number on your team. That's the point. So that you don't burn out. Um, You need the trainees. You need the facilities. You need patients, both volume and spectrum of cases, finances. Uh, Is it a mission program or a government program? There's pros and cons for both. Uh, You need national support. If the government doesn't want you there, you're not going to do your training. So some degree of support is is required by by the country. Uh, again, we talked about the number of models, and you want to get a model, a model that's uh, sufficient and adequate for your place. Accredited program or not? Uh, certified graduates or not? Uh, half of our programs have accreditation and certification. Another four or five don't, and uh, it's, it is a problem to one degree or another. The countries recognize their training, uh, but they don't certify the graduates because they're not a formal part of the they're not a part of the formal educational program or. or or um, system, um, and, and one of our programs doesn't care. They're not looking for certification. The ones they train, they've all finished their national training. They're all fully accredited. They could go practice wherever they want within their country, but they want additional training. They want a higher level of training, and they're Christians, and they want to be prepared to do medicine as ministry and, and be medical missionaries. So you'll have to decide for yourself um, uh, where you want to fall in that spectrum. National models... We've heard a lot about, during this conference, you've probably heard about in a lot of sessions that deal with critical thinking or analytical thinking. Medicine is a, uh, an analytical profession. You, you know, just following algorithms doesn't work a lot of times. I mean, you can do a certain amount with it, but uh, in many of the educational models that your trainees have grown up with are listen to the professor, memorize the material, put it back on a test, and then go out and practice medicine. Well, that'll work to a point, but it doesn't work... In a lot of, at a lot of points. So this should be included in your uh, teaching, uh, and critical thinking can be taught. It's, it's, it's a skill like anything else that can be learned, and uh, it should be in your, in your um, program. Also a spiritual curriculum. Uh, you know, we think of evangelism and discipleship taking place in the training process, but you want to um, 
be intentional. So you want to have a program. What are you trying to accomplish? What does it look like to have gone through your program and come out a little more mature spiritually, a little bit more aware spiritually, more able medically to use medicine as a ministry opportunity than before they started? So, uh, you know, in some countries, again, they can be wide open and, and full speed ahead. In other countries, they... If they even had a spiritual curriculum written down somewhere, it might put the whole program at risk. So it may be just in their head. But knowing what you're trying to accomplish and what would be considered success. So as far as our network of programs results, it, again, it depends on where. Medically, I would say we're doing a pretty good job in most countries that we're operating in. The, the skill levels uh, of our practitioners goes up and the outcomes are improved. Um, you can see that in a lot of places. Spiritually, I would say it's good, but not always apparent. Uh, in some countries, over the decades, uh, there would be literally thousands of people who have become Christians through the medical services that are given. Other places, like Afghanistan, that's, that's the toughest place we work. Uh, we've had one person become a believer. We're waiting for number two after 15 years of being there, and the first one left the country because they were afraid for their lives. You know, Their family was threatening them, and so they left. So it's, uh, but on the other hand, we feel like we're still supposed to be there. Uh, we're, we're not even sowing seed verbally. We're not even proclaiming the gospel verbally. It's more like getting the rocks out of the ground and pulling the weeds up so that someday there can be a verbal witness. Right now, it's more by a life witness. And uh, as the Lord says, one sows another reaps. Hopefully, we'll be able to sow the word eventually. But uh, what you can do spiritually depends on where you are. And then. Getting towards the end here, uh, in terms of a long-term medical education vision, uh, medical education, whether it's medical school or residency, is not a one- or two- or three-year project. You know, even family medicine, it's a three-year residency, but you don't have one class that you do the first year with them, and then you go second year, third year, and then you can quit and go home because you've done the, you've, you've finished. You have different classes starting, and you're committed to finishing with every class, and uh, it's really a, a multi-year program, uh, a process. Um, and, you, what, and the goal is not only to train good clinicians. That is where the rubber meets the road, that patient-doctor encounter, that clinical experience, uh, and the, the, the giving of good health care. But that's not the only step. That's the first step. The second would be to train uh, local people who can teach clinically, you know, at the bedside or give a lecture or in the hospital. That's the second step. <clears throat> the third and bigger step is to train an entire local faculty that can run the program, that can administrate the program, that can hire new faculty, know how to recruit faculty that are like-minded or that, can fit, that would fit within the program, or uh, recruit applicant trainees and, and know how to vet them and screen them and who's going to work well in the program. Uh, who can write a, a curriculum, who can set up rotations and so on. So a whole faculty does the job of a faculty. But, but even that's not the, pro, the, the final step. Um, you know, ha- having a local faculty that can run the whole pro- program well and keep it going. The final step, in my opinion, is when that faculty can replicate a whole new program, start a whole new program, maintain the medical excellence, and maintain the spiritual vision. I'm assuming it's a Christian program and pass it on to another program without any outside help. When you've done that, then you're done. Uh, If you you can take them all the way through that process to where they can start their own programs without help from outside, maintaining the medical quality and the spiritual vision, then they really are on their own. They're They're not dependent on someone else helping them at one step or another along the way in the medical education process. And that is a long process. That doesn't happen overnight. Well, very good. That's it. Any questions? Do we have? I don't know. Do you want to sit in a chair? We'll just stand up here and just see if there are any questions. We've got five. Yeah. Training. So you mentioned how the resources and the results seem to be kind of success they expect. You see the same thing the other way if Africans train in. Getting frustrated. I think the question is, uh, do local uh, educators get frustrated and burn out just like the expatriates could? Is that basically the question? Yes. I think, uh, I think basically the question is, 
Is that a reason to try and start programs in country? Yes. It is. Uh, I'm not sure I 100% understand the program, but uh, the question. But our motivation is to help people stay in country, and to develop faculties that can run them in country, uh, have their own resources, have their own support systems, and not burn out. I think is that. Am I answering your question? But yes, that is why we. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of uh, in our residency in Tulsa, Oklahoma. One of our original goals was to allow foreign medical school graduates to come. We train them, and then bless the countries they went back to uh, with their higher training, and they didn't go back. They never went back. Uh, I think out of the first 40, we had one. And, uh, and, and we all interviewed them before they came. They all said, my heart, and they're all Christians, and they, I don't doubt that at all. Uh, my heart is to serve my people. I want to go back. And, again, one went back out of the first 40. Uh, so it's better to train locally, I think, and even within a country uh, to train where they're going to practice, you know, it's, it's not just Americans that don't like to go to rural areas. You know, uh, one of my first experiences in uh, a low-income country was Nepal, and I was surprised to learn that Nepalis from uh, Kathmandu or Pokhara didn't like to go out in the mountainside. They wanted to stay in the big city too. So training locally in rural areas and district hospitals is also important so that they don't feel uncomfortable out in the boondocks. That's where they were raised, and that's they're used to it, and they... They know the people, and they'll stay. Can you have a comment about that? Let's see if your last talk. You that was what my last talk was all about, was all about actually. Is. Uh, locating medical training in rural areas is a way to prevent brain drain. Um, and there is some evidence that it works. Um, as I said in my last talk, it's hard to prove because people tend to self-select uh, people that get recruited to those programs. But certainly if you can model and mentor those that are in local settings as to how to use local resources to the best efficacy possible and how to care compassionately for patients even when you can't do everything medically you would like to do for them. Um, that goes a lot longer than um, having to backtrack after having trained in a much more high-resource setting. Um, it can be a lot more frustrating. If you are interested, though, I will give a quick plug. He talked about the challenges of expats coming to the field, North Americans, and being so frustrated that kids are dying of things that they shouldn't die from in 2019. My teammate wrote a book called Promises in the Dark. Uh, it's free at the search booth, or you can get it on Amazon, and it is, it is excellent. I highly recommend it for a way to deal with the dark that we see around us, the, the in, inequality, the insufficiencies, the the challenges of, of really hard things that every new person to the field deals with, um, particularly the first five years. I think that's the, the big focus is, is, is those things. Um, so. One more question? There you go, or, there you go Jim. Okay. Um, I'm on now. You're good. Um, so why, uh, why doctoral level education as opposed to something at a lower level. How, how do we make that decision in the places that we're going into that that's the right level of education when we're talking about maybe some people really having trouble getting jobs even uh, at that level? Well, we are doctors and we're training doctors, so that's what we're talking about. But you're right, it's not the only level. Uh, there's nursing level, there's mid-level providers, there's community health, organi uh, health, health educators. All those levels are important and needed and you just have to know what's appropriate at the, at the moment where you are and then train accordingly. It depends on the context. Kenya yeah. does a lot of clinical officer training, which is similar to a PA. Um, has, that doesn't exist. They have no idea what that is. There's no way we could take a PA because they would they would not be able to get licensed or credentialed in Burundi because it doesn't exist. But like you said, family practice also doesn't exist in some places, and they've been able to get buy-in with that over time. So somebody can be a trailblazer for those kinds of opportunities. Um, certainly there's great value things that they could do. I will say I have, I have a friend who's a PA who went to a place where he didn't have anybody, no medical oversight, no medical doctor, um, and, and he really struggled. He ended up leaving that place and going to a place where he would have more support. So it just depends on, on the personality of the person. And also, so. none of us can do everything. Uh, Dan Fountain, who's no longer alive, challenged our organization years ago when we were beginning to get into medical education 20, 15, 20 years ago. He said, well, what about all the people in the world who will never see a doctor? Well, that's a very appropriate question. What about them? And, and mid-level providers, community health workers, uh, nursing, and other 
not doctoral level care providers are very appropriate in those situations, and that's a whole other training enterprise. So you do what you can do. And I think there's one more comment here. We've done some of this at PNG training doctors for rural areas. And the truth is, it's not right, but it's the truth. The money follows the doctors. Mm-hmm. A, a Ministry of Health is more inclined to stick finances around doctors. I don't think that's right, um, but that's the argument we make in PNG all the time is mm-hmm. you've got to put the doctors out there because then the Department of Health. They can't just sit on 99% of the resources going to have city. They have doctors out there, and the doctors make noise, and they make ugly noise sometimes. And that's good for the rural areas, especially like the rural areas. Yeah. Thanks. One last comment? Okay. I, I, we've run over a little bit. Thank you all for coming. Hope you got a little bit out of it. And please fill out the form. Are you coming out to Burundi?